believe you can't make a difference, then you definitely won't. Whereas if you maintain optimism and believe that something's possible, then perhaps it is. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. This is a slightly different episode than usual. As regular listeners will know, this podcast typically eschews politics and policy. But today, they're unavoidable. My guest is Terry Butler, a friend and colleague who will be talking about her new book, Labour of Love. If you're on the left, you're in for a treat, as Terry talks about the role that music, laughter and rallies play in fighting for progressive causes. But dyed-in-the-wool conservatives who'd prefer to read a book titled Liberal of Love or National of Love might choose to skip ahead to the next episode. When Terry Butler gave her first speech to Parliament in 2014, the thing that struck me most was her smile. Whether she was talking about unions or Medicare, local campaigning or global engagement, she just looked happy. As a colleague, I've realised this epitomises Terry's approach to life. She's brilliantly incisive on policy issues from family violence to intellectual property. But what most marks her out is the joy she shows in practising politics. In her new book, Labour of Love, Terry tells the story of her engagement with politics and makes the case for progressives to engage with mainstream politics. Join a union. Join the Labour Party. Campaign in elections. But she also tells a larger story about the fulfilment that comes from active engagement in a cause that's larger than yourself. And that's what I'd like to explore today. This is the first live recording of the Good Life podcast, so it's going to be an experiment for me and the hundred or so people who've gathered here at the Australian National University to hear Terry speak. The two of us will be in conversation for about 45 minutes, after which we'll throw things open for questions. Terry, welcome. Thanks, Andrew, and thanks so much for having me, and thanks very much to the ANU for allowing us to do this tonight, uh, and particularly to Colin for all of the organising that you've done. It's absolutely lovely to be here. So I want to start on music. You have this whole chapter in the book about music and how it captures the temper of the times. Uh, and you talk in particular about the oboe. What's special about the oboe? So one of the things that I think is really important if you want to be engaged in public life is working out how to do things that are completely unrelated uh, ostensibly or superficially to public life so that you're not um, getting sucked into that vortex of of um, politics and organisational politics and so I like music as an outlet. Uh, I do have a Tuesday night Baroque club at the Parliament uh, which doesn't sound like the sort of thing you'd have a, at a Parliament but I'm going to tell you a little secret. Julie Owens has a harpsichord <laughs> in her office and I may have gently encouraged her to buy that harpsichord and so we play, <laughs> we love playing Handel's Messiah, it's a little, uh, a little um, Funny little ensemble because it's an oboe, a harpsichord, and an Irish bagpipe <laughs> playing the first oboe part. Um, and the reason I think we do that is because, firstly, as I say, you need an outlet. Secondly, I think it's quite true to say that creative pursuits are good at helping your brain to think about things in different ways. And anyone here who does any creative work or engage in any, whether it might be music or visual arts or dance, uh, I think you'll agree that your brain works differently while you're doing it and on, you can often come up with some, some really good insights as a consequence of that. And I, so I, you know, I like classical music, I like Baroque music, um, but I think kind of in the broader context of politics, we have to acknowledge the importance of music uh, in inspiring people and in lifting people up to feel like they are part of something bigger and something that's meaningful. And often emotion is so much better captured in music than in polemics or in spoken word or in speeches. And so I do write about music a, lot, music a lot in the book because I think it's important to say that our movement has anthems and those anthems help to inspire us to keep going when things are really difficult. And also, you don't get people to get involved in politics by making it sound really worthy and horribly dull. You just don't. Like if you say to people, oh, look, come to this three-hour branch meeting, we're going to start with the apologies, we'll then look at last meeting's minutes, then someone will do a finance report and then we'll have correspondence. <laughs> I'm not going to go to that, are you? So I think we have to have music and fun as well. 
So one of your, the favourite songs you mentioned in the book is Drunk on Election Night, although you do point out that its lyrics are not necessarily uh, suitable for a uh, family-friendly podcast such as this. Uh, but then you also discuss a lot uh, Billy Bragg. Uh, what do you love about Billy Bragg? The class consciousness of Billy Bragg is really important because I think sometimes you know, people like me who talk about inequality and people to a much greater extent like you, Andrew, who've done a lot of detailed and serious work on inequality, are sometimes accused of waging something called class warfare when we point out the discrepancies between the living standards of people uh, at the bottom end of the, uh, uh, of the uh, in income scale versus the top end of the distribution. And so I think it's important to say it's actually okay to have a consciousness about the fact that some people are just worse off than others and that there are structural impediments to advancement. Uh, it's part of... His music is part of saying that we do need to think about structures and about processes and about governance. And it's not enough just to say to people, just pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps. Because, yes, some people can do that, but not everyone can, of course. Uh, and if you believe in getting involved in, in left-wing politics, as I do, part of the work of that is to criticise the structures um, that are... Uh, um, set up in a way that does exclude people. And again, if you do that in a really worthy and earnest way, that's important, um, but sometimes you've got to convey the message in um, something that people can sing along to. So the book, like your personality, has this peppy, upbeat tone. Uh, but there's also these shocking moments. Uh, you talk about your experience of going through a miscarriage, about losing friends to cancer, about a man who made online threats against your children. But none of those things seem to shake your optimistic faith in humanity. Now, what's that grounded in? It's, uh, I, firstly, I have a kind of a naturally optimistic personality, Andrew, which I was... I, I, I don't know, perhaps I was born with it, but I have great, positive, incredibly sensible parents who um, nothing's ever been too much for them, so I'm lucky to have had that. But I also think... Um, that optimism is tactically important. And that's really one of the themes of the book, that if you, if you believe you can't make a difference, then you definitely won't. Whereas if you maintain optimism and believe that something's possible, then perhaps it is. And, you know, I really learned that uh, as a young lawyer. Uh, my, um, one of my clients, the Electrical Trades Union, was in a very, very serious industrial dispute in Queensland over contractors' rates of pay. And you know, the employers were throwing everything at us from uh, claiming that if they went on strike that hospitals would have no power to... Which actually is really familiar now because that's what the Tories are saying about uh, energy policy. But um, to saying that we were going to threaten the war effort if, if people went on strike. And um, our view was that what we should do is we should keep negotiating and try to get an enterprise agreement. And the barrister who I was working with had been in the Cambodian peace talks with the UN. And he said to me, look... We just Here's what we have to do. We have to maintain strategic optimism. Because if we do that, if we believe that we can get there, we can keep them talking, and that's the only way we're going to actually get a good deal. And we did. We talked and we talked and we talked and we talked, and partly because of the force of our ideas and largely because of exhaustion, <laughs> the other side agreed with us, and we were able to, to resolve it. And so I think there's a real, um, often a tactical imperative to build optimism into the work that you're doing if you want to be someone who makes change. I mean, I think, I kind of make the point in the book, the status quo is easy, right? Like, conservatives are just, their job is to say no to change, and that's much easier than making a positive case for change. And to make a positive case for change, you've got to believe in what you're doing. You can't just be a, a mouthpiece. You've actually got to mean it. Uh, there's no point just being a kind of gun for hire in this stuff. You've got to believe what you're saying, and... If you believe in it, you'll be optimistic that it's possible. Do you, does that optimism find itself tested when you go into the angry environment of, of question time? Are there moments when you think that uh, the parliament, parliamentary discourse itself needs a, a slightly sunnier note, a little bit more optimism? I definitely find my hearing tested because it's really loud in there. You can't tell from TV how loud it is. Um, but my optimism isn't tested by it because Question Time is largely theatrical. It's people playing roles. And if you want to be cured of your cynicism about Question Time as a parliamentarian, then just go to a committee and do some work in a collaborative way. 
if you want to be cured of your cynicism about question time as a non-parliamentarian, that's actually harder because you don't have the opportunities to see people as multifaceted, real human beings. You do tend to see them as the stereotypes and the caricatures that they're turned into um, through as a, as a consequence of the medium. It's not a, as though there's some sort of deliberate campaign out there to turn us into caricatures, but I think it's just a necessary consequence of the way that it's broadcast, what's broadcast, and, and how things are filtered. I don't know how you show up on the Myers-Briggs scale, but from my standpoint, you seem like one of the most extroverted people I know in, in an extraordinarily extroverted workplace. Uh, do you have to work at that, or does that come naturally? Are you, do you have a kind of Bob Hawkey way of drawing energy in your interactions from others? <laughs> um, I do know where I am on the Myers-Briggs scale because uh, in 2013, so about eight months before going into, into Parliament, uh, I did a, one of those executive courses. I was a partner at Morris Blackburn and all the partners there do um, some leadership development training, right? And so I did one of those and I am dead in the middle. I'm an ambivert, a true ambivert, Andrew. Um, but it's funny, you can, you can be that as a lawyer you know, you've got clients, you've got a set of people. Um, but as someone who wants to lead change and influence people and persuade people en masse and one-on-one, -on -one, you know, as a lawyer, I wasn't trying to persuade people of things. I was trying to be their, uh, their voice in, in a really direct sense about a, a specific set of things. Now I'm trying to be a force for change and... And so I think you just have to, you have to push through that natural shyness or whatever you have and, and actually talk to people. And in, interestingly enough, this is what Kevin said to me when we were campaigning together in the 2014 by-election. He said to me, I'm a naturally shy person. Now, to me, Kevin didn't seem like a naturally shy person. Um, you know, I, he was my local member. He's my federal member, uh, obviously. Um, and he just seemed so at ease talking to anyone at all. And he said, you've just got to push through it and realise that most people are nice people and they actually want to talk to you. And, and so, my, you know, my experience as a campaigner over the kind of preceding 15 or 17 years or so had been, you knock on the door, people are nice, or you pick up the phone, people are nice. That had certainly been my experience but it's different when you're doing it as the candidate. And so as soon as I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense, and just started going up and talking to people, I found that people are genuinely lovely. It's very hard to find someone who is, who is horrible, at least to your face. And in my lecture, <laughs> and in my lecture you know, I don't get very many negative comments, but you do, I mean, you do get the odd person who doesn't vote Labor, and that's fine, and you know, it's a marginal electorate. Um, I remember one time I was campaigning with Bill Shorten. We were in a very wealthy part of the electorate, and I was wondering whether we might get any, any people who wanted to tell us that they didn't vote for us. And honestly, the only negative comment I got all morning was this guy who was jogging, jogging past, and he sort of slowed down and he said, oh, no, thanks, I really hate you guys, but have a good day anyway. And just kept on <laughs> so um, you, can be, you can be extroverted. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be fake. I'm not going to put on a show. But the more I've done this job, the more I've felt really comfortable just talking to anyone because my experience is that people are just... People are lovely, and sure, I'll get the odd person who's rude to my staff, nice to me. I usually um, treat that with the sort of um, contempt it deserves. I think if you're willing to be rude to a staffer and not to me, then I'm probably going to form an adverse judgment about you. Um, but most people I find are just, they're passionate, they might be angry, they might be um, worried, they might be distressed. Um, but if you get to what's at the heart of their issue, their concern, their passion, and just try to show empathy and be a human being, then there's, there's nothing to be scared of. And so that has certainly drawn me out and I'm definitely 10 times as extroverted as I was uh, as, a, as a solicitor. You also talk about the role of vulnerability in, in politics and in particular about uh, the way in which our colleague Emma Hughes-Hour opened up about her experience of, of family violence and, and about how Peter Beattie uh, showed vulnerability through apologising for things. Uh, tell us about how you think 
politicians ought to, to be more vulnerable. So there's, I think, Andrew, your experience would be similar. There's, there's this kind of exercise you undertake with yourself to say, um, all right, I don't, I don't want to be anything I'm not for people. Um, and so that means being who I am for people. But where do you, where, where do you draw a boundary around what you're willing to give of yourself, of your own experience and, and personal history and, and what you're not prepared to give. And uh, I think sometimes if you draw that in too, um, too narrowly, if you, if you are too protect, protective of yourself, then people mistake that for inauthenticity. They'll mistake privacy for you being you know, one of these two-dimensional characters that people think politicians are. And so I think there's always a choice that you make about how much you give and sometimes you feel like you're slicing yourself into pieces and giving the pieces out, right? Um, but my own view is to err on the side of giving more, not less, because of that risk of people just thinking that you're, you know, one of those... Um, kind of production line, all the same politicians. And I think the tendency to be protective of ourselves is fed into those stereotypes and those caricatures sometimes. So um, I think vulnerability is really important. I think showing it is really important. And I think that's part of the price that we have to pay if we want people to empathise with each other but also believe the things that we have to say. My own little window into this uh, came with a Christmas card a couple of years back mm -hmm. where we'd sort of always done the Christmas card as kind of uh, as perfect as we could manage to get the children to be. And then one year we had this terrific photo of David Foote talk which involved my youngest son, Zachary, sitting off to the side with a grumpy face. Uh, and we were actually a bit reluctant to put it on. And then when we put that, put that on the Christmas card, uh, a whole bunch of people said, this is fantastic, this is really funny, I really like the fact that a politician has the same sort of stuff going wrong in their lives that everybody else does. <laughs> it was an iconic photo. Yeah, yeah, so it it's was. been on like CNN and Indian TV and you know, <laughs> gone, gone, all, gone all around the world. But it was a little window to me about the value of just showing a bit of yourself as something uh, not just a veneer of perfection. How do you try and do that in, in, your, in your own life? Uh, well, I wrote a book in which I told all sorts of stories about it. So. Yeah, it's <laughs> a pretty good answer. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, the trick is, the, the technique is to, um, to talk about yourself as much as you need to to be... A person, not a, not a, not a caricature, uh, but not so much that you cross the line into complete narcissism. So um, that is that's always a fine balancing act. I'm lucky because I think if I was ever to tend towards the narcissistic, my um, my living situation would bring me right back down to earth. I'm sure it's the same for you. Like your kids are always going to tell you right uh, what they think of you, and uh, um, I. Uh, Helen mentioned before the, the the juggling work and family thing. I just want to be really clear. It is only possible because I've got this army of people who help me out and any number of them will um, give me a metaphorical uppercut in the event that I become too narcissistic, I hope. So, um, and, I, you know, I, I say in the book, sometimes I get really frustrated by the tell me how you do it question, you know, like, well, no one's asking Sam Dastiari that. He's got two kids the same age as mine or... Jim Chalmers, whose kids are younger, or Andrew Giles, whose kids are the same age as mine, or Tim Watts, whose kids are the same age as mine, or, um, you know, any number. I think all of my, Pat Conroy, all of my colleagues from the same cohort have kids the same age as mine. But when, sometimes when people ask me that, I, I think, just step back. Sometimes people are asking that because they're trying to imagine how they would do it. And that deserves an answer. That deserves, I mean, it, sure, it's annoying that the women get asked and the men don't, sure. But it deserves a genuine answer because if someone's trying to picture themselves doing it, it means they're picturing themselves doing politics. And I absolutely want to encourage that. So I do, I do mention, you know, um, we bought a house. It's got a house in the backyard. My parents now live in the same block of land as us. Um, my parents-in-law live 
one suburb away. We've had a nanny since April was seven months old when I was at at a law firm. We like honestly, we have so much help, and that's how we do it. And it is just ridiculous to expect of yourself that you could manage a family, have a partner who works or works away or travels, um, be in full time politics without putting support around that. So. I've certainly got a lot of support. Some of those colleagues have different things that they've put in place as well. Um, yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's a constant logistical nightmare. I don't want to understate it. But it works for us. And so if it can work for us, then it can work for other people as well. Not, I'm not blind to the, as I say, the um, structural impediments, the difficulties that people face. Um, but I hate the idea of of people and particularly women saying, I couldn't possibly do politics because I can't even imagine how the logistics of that would work. Yeah, and I think one of the values of your book is you go into a little bit of unpacking what your village looks like that is sitting around you raising those uh, those, those two children. Uh, but you also talk about the attitudes, which uh, the double standards, which you've alluded to, and uh, you have a comment about one of your uh, one of the other parliamentarians who you don't name, but I think I might be able to guess who it is, uh, a National Party MP who says uh, they don't have many women in the National Party because National Party women love their children too much to enter politics. <laughs> and oh my God, he was so upset when he realised that I was hurt by that comment. <laughs> How do we change those attitudes? It's really interesting, isn't it? Um, that was, a, that was uh, in an interview that was being recorded by Fairfax. It wasn't a private conversation. I'm not breaching any confidences. He just sort of said this on air. Because, <laughs> you know, he knew that I had two young children. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to change attitudes, and we know that. But I, I, we all know that because we all have all tried to do it. But one of the things that we have to do... Uh, is, is acknowledge that culture and structure are related. Changing structure is not enough. Changing culture is not enough. You've got to do both, and the two things are symbiotic. And so uh, one of the things that we did in the Labor Party was say, all right, you know, like we can talk about a pipeline of women or whatever until we're blue in the face, but what we really should do is we should actually change our constitution uh, so that we can do something about having women in parliament. And it's this perfect little control group experiment, right? And when people say, do quotas really work? Because in 1994, we had the same female representation in parliaments as the Liberals. And in 1994, we decided at a national conference that we were going to have affirmative action. Uh, and then over subsequent years, states changed their rules. In, in Queensland, we changed ours in 1999. It was a massive stoush, massive stoush. Um, men and women fighting at our state conference about whether we should be changing our rules to meet the affirmative action targets, whether that was insulting to women, uh, whether it meant that there would be women who were just there because they were filling quotas. Somehow we'd have all these women of no merit and all these men of merit would miss out. Um, but, you know, we changed our rules. Uh, we changed our rules in Queensland to what was actually just a target, not a quota. So what we said was will impose a loading onto votes for women compared to votes for men, but if that's not enough to get them there, then that's just too bad. Uh, and then uh, subsequently we're, we changed some more. Long story short, we changed our rules, and what happened was, like, nobody ever used these rules, right? They just never got used. Because magically, women of merit started to put their hands up when we had affirmative action rules. People leading factions magically started to find women of merit so that their opponents from the other factions wouldn't get an advantage over them. <laughs> and so honestly, since 1999, I can remember all of one pre-selections in Queensland where we actually had affirmative action apply, uh, the actual, you know, the, the rules, because we didn't need them. And so culture followed structure. Uh, structure keeps changing to help improve culture. Uh, now we have a national conference decision of 2015 to go to 50% by 2025. We started out at 30, I think 30% or 35% back in 1994 when our original targets were set. Uh, and we've seen the change. And as I said, it's a great control group experiment because 94, we're at 17% and so are the libs. If you have a look at the graph for female representation, there's a red line that goes up. We're now at 45% in our federal caucus. And there's a blue line that is flat. 
If anything, it's dipped slightly down. And right now, there are more women on Labor's front bench than there are Liberal women in the House of Representatives. So, yes, you have to think about quotas. Uh, quotas do change attitudes because, of course, what happened in the Labor Party? When we had more female representation, it became normal. So it's not, it would be very abnormal now for a, a, a male Labor MP or senator to say, oh, well, we'd have more female representation, but, you know, Labor women just love their kids too much. Um, it would just be a weird thing to say, right? Because it's so jarring, the idea that love for your children and a, and a public life are, are inconsistent and mutually exclusive. It's such a jarring thing in our culture, but in the National Party culture, it's pretty normal. So I want to ask you about uh, your attitude to anger. Uh, and there is, uh, there's a lovely distinction that the Chicago philosopher Martha Nussbaum draws between righteous anger, the sort of anger that inspires you to go out and change things, such as getting more women into parliament, uh, and vindictive anger, that sort of ang anger that says, um, X has hurt me, so I'm going to inflict pain on X. Uh, and Nussbaum says that's a, that's a stupid emotion. Do you share that view? Yeah, I do. I really do. I um, I, I don't know. I've just never this. I know how this is going to sound. I've never been able to hold a grudge. I, like I've just never been able to. It just seems like such a waste of effort. I mean, I, not that I've had much to hold grudges about. People have been pretty good to me through my life, and I acknowledge that. And that's part of living a bit of a, a blessed life. But you know, the odd person has had has tried to do the occasional terrible thing to me, and it's just. Like, you just go, you know, oh, whatever, poor thing, probably having a miserable day. Lucky <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not them. Um, but righteous anger is, of course, really important. And I think if you're not feeling angry right now, you're probably not paying attention. <laughs> so I feel anger. I feel a great deal of anger about a great deal of things. I'm worried about things, obviously, but it's also anger. And anger is inspirational. If you're angry about the fact that we just blew $122 million on a national opinion poll on whether people should have the same human rights as each other, then that's a great piece of inspiration to get involved in politics and elect people who wouldn't do that sort of thing. Uh, if you're feeling angry about Australia refusing to be a part of the new negotiations for a new nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons treaty, then that's a pretty good inspiration also to get involved in politics. And I think the great thing about anger, if you are getting angry about what's happening in federal politics, then that is the first step to acknowledging that what happens in federal politics actually matters. And once you acknowledge that, then you're well on your way to feeling responsibility to do something about it. So yours is a boisterous politics and I want to quickly run through some of the uh, some of the things that you uh, you commend in the, in the in the practice of politics uh, give me a little quick snapshot of, uh, of some of these things rallies love them love rallies love chanting love marching love them favorite rally international women's day in the early 2000s I was on the collective um, it was a funny collective you know we'd get there and there'd be Anyway, so I don't know if any of you have been involved in any of the very left-wing organisations like International Socialist or Social Alternative, but they would all come to the collective and they would spend three hours on, you know, which of the competing traditional owner claimants we should acknowledge first. And we're, you know, um, talking about um, most recent thought in relation to structuralism and there'd be like two of us going, I think we should get a permit for the march. Uh, and so it was great because you get, you get a collective that's sort of really exposed to really interesting, diverse, thoughtful um, arguments, completely different political persuasions that you wouldn't normally be in the same room with. Uh, and then we would actually pull off something amazing, which is hundreds of women on the streets of Brisbane talking about things like sexual assault, like reproductive choice, uh, like equal pay. And so I know it's, I mean, I know it's, this all sounds a bit Pollyanna, right, Andrew, but it's actually really inspirational to be part of um, a rally, to be part of a movement, to be part of people exercising power collectively en masse. And that's actually kind of the point of this book, which is uh, my, my friend David Peets wrote a book a long time ago in which he said, 
resistance is not futile. And that's kind of the point of this book. It's not futile, and the way to do it is to do it together. Cross-factional marriage. <laughs> My husband's in a different faction to me. <laughs> How was the wedding? <laughs> well, you know, you know at your wedding you're like, all right, we better sit auntie such and such there and nowhere near uncle blah blah. Yeah, that was like our wedding, but it was mostly like, oh, that's going to be the AWU people. They're going to talk about shearing all night. We can't sit them near the vegans. <laughs> it was good fun. Strong unions. Uh, so I think unions are really important. It's kind of an understatement. And it's, it's funny, isn't it? You can't talk about unions without everyone all, almost falling into the the established kind of ruts of your pro-union, your anti-union, your pro-labor, your anti-labor. But I, I think if you're, if you're worried about um, the wage price index being flat, you know, the lowest it's been since we started keeping it in the late 1990s, if you're worried about low inflation, uh, if you're worried about low revenues into the federal budget, then you have to be worried about why collective bargaining isn't working in this country anymore. And, you know, I, I support collective bargaining. I, I support um, collective bargaining ahead of centralised wage fixing. But what we have now over the evolution since it was first introduced in formal ways in 1993 is so atomised, so individualised that we're actually seeing um, a real diminution of people's power at work. Uh, and in the same book that I mentioned before from David Peets, he said that's not just about the workplace, that's about a whole range of other things. And so I think it's, it's bad for our economy, but it's also really bad for social cohesion and democracy. Because once you start feeling powerless at work, the main activity of your life for most people, the place where you spend 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day, once you start feeling like you have absolutely no control over what happens there, then you start to believe that you lack power in other areas as well. And so David makes the point, and I agree with it, that you, um, it's a problem for social cohesion and it's a problem for community. And I see it. You know, we did, we did an event about remittances the other day and about the big banks and about what policy, um, Andrew and I and Tony Burke and Graham Parrott, that is, and what, what policy responses you might have to the way that banks rip off people who remit money home, back home, uh, to people in developing countries. And this guy was there and he said, oh, you can never win against the banks. <laughs> no, there's no point in any of this. You can never win. And that's, that's what I mean when I talk about the, the feeling of powerlessness. And, of course, he's wrong because the way to win against the banks or against any economic actor is through democracy and collectivism. But people have stopped believing that, and I think a big reason they've stopped believing that is because unions and therefore power at work have really diminished. Tiki bars? Tiki bars. Does everyone like cocktails? <laughs> Does anyone here not? No, you don't have to put it in your hand. <laughs> uh, my mate Brendo has a tiki bar under his house, and his, him and his wife Sam run amazing Labor Party events there, and she is the vice president of the Queensland Teachers Union, and there's nothing better... <laughs> than drinking tequila and talking about education policy. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we uh, opened up for questions, let me ask you a, a set of final questions that I throw to my podcast interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Stay home a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, Something I used to believe, I used to believe um, that uh, it's this thing, isn't it, where you always feel bulletproof when you're a kid. And I've, I don't know, maybe it's the age I'm at, but I've had a lot of people die lately. And so I used to believe that we all had plenty of time, but I certainly don't believe that now. When are you most happy? I'm always happy. <laughs> but I'm most happy with, with my kids. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I walk a lot. 
and I try to get a good night's sleep. Also a tip from Kevin. Did you practice that? <laughs> How would I know? I wasn't there. Do you have any guilty pleasures? You know, on the day of the by-election, Kevin and I had campaigned together and I went to the polling booth with my husband and he and I voted together and the media thought this was shocking. We're like, where's Kevin? Why aren't you voting with Kevin? So I'm not, I'm not married to Kevin. So yeah, I don't know how he sleeps and I don't know what he's up, what, you know, what he was up to on polling day. What did you ask me? Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, I have so many guilty pleasures. Um, I still watch a lot of Buffy. It um, really cheers me up. And um, that's probably the main one. But I also... Um, I um, This is going to sound really, really shallow, but I just had my first ever, at the age of almost 40, pedicure. And honestly, I'm just going to leave my feet soaking in a hot bath from now on once a week. It's like the best thing ever. And segueing seamlessly, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, Several, um, my parents obviously, um, my and my and my grandparents for that matter. Uh, but I, I think, um, I you know I, I try to do a lot of like like everyone. I try to think a bit about what that actually looks like, and so um, it, it's a funny thing. I'm not I'm I'm not religious, but I do spend. A, bit of time going to the churches in the electorate and so the priests even though uh, I don't I'm not a um, religious person I always find what they have to say really fascinating and thoughtful um, and I um, you know I quite like AC Grayling's writing on living a good life uh, I, I don't know why I did this but I read Immanuel Kant's The Moral Law when I was I don't even know how old 20 some age uh, and so I've often thought about whether the motivation for what we do actually matters to whether it's ethical. Um, and and this, this comes up all the time. In fact, we had a, a debate about Emmanuel Kant at a committee hearing recently. We were talking about whistleblower protections um, and about whether or not we should incentivise whistleblowing financially or whether that lessens the value of the act of blowing the whistle. Uh, it's It's good to take into account the ethical and moral dimensions when you're thinking about what laws should be made, I think, and, and not out of place to do so. And, you know, if you want an example of a, a difficult ethical and moral question, you have to look no further than what's happening on Manus Island right now. Um, you know, and some people say it's not a difficult ethical or moral question, it's a straightforward one. Um, I, wish it, I wish it was that simple and I don't think it is. We've now got about uh, 15 minutes for audience questions, so let's throw it open. I understand there's some uh, roving microphones, so please put your hand up and wait for the microphone to come to you. And uh, start off by letting us know who you are before you ask your question, please. Oh, very interesting talk, thanks, Jerry. The, uh, you often hear comments, really you often hear the comments from people that there's a dissolution with the politicians and there's a general view in the media that politicians and then you hear people and friends of mine often saying, well, I feel quite powerless to do anything anyhow. So you sort of address that. But I wanted to also, if you had anything more to add on that, and also in terms of your comment on optimism, how do you feel, it seems to me you can be optimistic about issues more in your control, but how do you feel, how can you be optimistic, say, on some of these bigger issues in terms of global inequality or global degradation or the rising nationalism? Yes. <laughs> Loss of the decline of liberal liberalism and so on. Yeah, and it's a good question, and I, th I think I'll answer the second part by saying if you're not, if everyone just gives up, then that is guaranteed catastrophe. And so how can you be optimis optimistic about those global problems? You have to be. None of us can afford to allow ourselves to give in to pessimism on those problems because the fact is we have to deal with global inequality, we have to deal with climate change, we have to deal with the threat of nuclear proliferation and we have to do, deal with rising nationalism and, uh, and I mean, of course, all those things are connected too, aren't they? Um, do I think I can individually and personally solve those problems? Of course not, I'm not a megalomaniac. 
But do I think that I, along with millions of people who care, can do something? It's part of a collective you can. And that's how you can be optimistic because you can understand the power of people in a mass movement changing things. And the beauty of being in the Labour Party is we're part of a mass movement. We're not a small handful of eclectic individuals. I mean, there's plenty of eclectic and idiosyncratic, might I even say, and possibly even eccentric individuals in the Labour Party. Um, but none of us, I hope, thinks that any of us is um, going to solve problems individually. We're going to solve problems together. And then on the question of, you know, people think such and such about politicians, there's a bit of a tendency to treat politicians as if we're a kind of lump and undifferentiated homogenous mass. And I think that really does politics and people's power a disservice because if you accept the proposition that all politicians are the same, you accept the proposition that it doesn't matter who you vote for. And that's a really problematic and irresponsible sentiment that is deliberately, um, deliberately distributed by some people. Not, of course, not you, but there are some people who, and of course I'm talking about people in fringe parties, who benefit from saying that all politicians are the same and that what we've got to do is just get rid of all the politicians and then we're fine. Uh, and of course the, the kind of the... The uh, contradictions in, that are inherent in that are obvious because these are people seeking elected office, which by definition makes them politicians. Um, but, you know, if we succumb to the idea that all politicians are the same, then that, legitimis, that legitimises the idea that it doesn't matter who you vote for or that you shouldn't bother voting at all. And that's it's just reckless because it does matter. It actually matters. And if we were to imagine a country, you know, imagine... A country where since the 1970s there had been no Labor governments, that all been coalition governments, it would be a completely different country. Imagine if we'd never had the Hawke or Keating or Gillard or Rudd governments. It would be, I think, a pretty dark place. So we have to, we have to I think, challenge any implicit um, assumptions that all politicians are the same. Uh, we have to not let that sort of thing slide. And, you know, even in, even in situations where people who should know better are doing it, I think we've got to pick them up on it. You know, often people say, oh, political parties are hopeless, there's no women in parliament. Well, actually one political party is good, has been making progress, is going to get to 50%. The other one is hopeless. And if we allow the idea to take root that it's just political parties that are hopeless, well, then you just uh, you you really do run the risk that people donkey vote or don't bother turning up in the first place. Terry, thanks for coming. It's been very interesting. And, uh, as as a long time member of the Labor Party myself, uh, in the in the ACT now across the border in Queanbeyan, I can tell you that uh, if, if Andrew hasn't already lived. The ACT introduced affirmative action back in 1985. That's, that's given us you know, two very successful ACT chief ministers and a high proportion of, of federal members. Mm. Who have and the quality of them has been incredible. <laughs> but seriously, on the, on the question of whether you get unmeritorious women as a consequence of affirmative action, mm. I think if anyone looked at Katie Gallagher and thought she was unmeritorious, I'd have to send them off to um, get their... Uh, Get the head red. And, and the only Liberals win to actually, you know, win actually to win any elections in in the in the ACT Assembly has been a woman. And but they seem to forgotten that lesson. And now uh, a question that uh, we I think to, uh, to, uh, this is it today's the last day for uh, the uh, the uh, the receipt of uh, of uh, of. Uh, survey forms for the you know, self-selecting non-scientific survey, which uh, <laughs> hopefully will come out the right way. But uh, uh, the, the $122 million spent on that and the acrimony, do you think that's uh, had any, any influence on the fact that the, the Prime Minister, uh, Mr Turnbull, has, has rejected out of hand uh, any suggestion of, uh, of uh, of a, a referendum to, to entrench an Aboriginal advisory body 
or or any 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 movement on the to, on the, on change change to section forty four or other parts of the constitution. Um. Firstly, I think on the on the current one, the one that finished today, um, there has been a lot of adverse feedback about the money that's been spent on that process. But for me, it, I'm very very upset about the waste of money. But what I think is much more um, terrible about that process is the distress that it's inflicted on LGBTI people and. And so I don't know whether that's filtering back to the Prime Minister, or I suspect it may not be, um, only because of the nature of his organisation, his show. Um, but I, I don't think we want to see that sort of distress inflicted on anyone. Um, on, on Section 44, I mean, there are other referenda I would want to have before Section 44. Australia <coughs> becoming a republic. Uh, constitutional recognition, um, obvious examples. And, you know, the Section 44 issue, I, I don't support the provision, it's outdated, it's a relic from a white Australia past. But it's pretty, it affects a pretty small number of Australians, the number of Australians who want to run for parliament, and any of them can cure it. It's a very simple matter, well, sorry, if, if you... English, it's a simple matter. If you're Iranian, like Sam Dastyari, it's a very complicated matter and it costs him thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but um, it can be cured, and so I think that's, you know, that's pretty reasonable. But on the constitutional recognition of a voice to parliament question, I suspect what's motivating Malcolm Turnbull is the conservative opposition within his own cabinet. And I thought it was pretty disgraceful that he rejected it out of hand. I mean, you got the statement from the heart, from Uluru, recommending a voice to parliament and truth-telling, those things sound pretty good to me. Let's take two more questions. John Gus um, There's been a rise in recent decades of tribal hate speech. Um, we particularly see it online, but we see it everywhere, and including the Parliament, of course. And question time is particularly bad, but the speeches in Parliament are much degraded these days as, they used, as compared to how they used to be. Um, you know, the, the speeches seem to be basically about dissing the opposition rather than actually a debate about the, the policies. Um, what can Labor do to fix this? Because, well, I ask you particularly because you're a contributor to the cacophony of question time. And, uh, and so, yes, what, what should we do about it? Yes, it's a good question, isn't it? Because I think you have to ask yourself, what drives that sort of conduct in question time? Do we only elect people who want to go to question time and yell? Outside of question time, I don't think I ever yell. I don't think I've ever yelled at... Um, I mean, I'll, I'll chant. I'm pretty good at that. But I'm not really a shouty person. Uh, so it's not like everyone wanted to go into Parliament so they could um, engage in that, in that sort of type of theatre. But it frankly is a type of theatre. And so what directs that... What incentivises that conduct? Well, it's not an innate desire on the part of politicians to want to shout, so maybe it's something else. What else could it be? Could it be the fact that if we're silent, the press gallery would write about how dejected we look and how we're not backing in Bill Shorten? Could it be that if we don't look energised and passionate that you get the sort of commentary that suggests that you're not really interested. But, but Could it was it, different well, 20 years ago, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it absolutely was. And what's different, what's changed between now and 20 years ago? Have people with less of an inclination towards public service become interested in politics? Or is, are there other things that have changed? And I mean, I'm, I don't want to sit here and blame the media. That's boring. 
and it's not, it's too simplistic. Um, because frankly, what's driving the media, the behaviour of journalists, it's what the public wants. What sells newspapers, we've got a lot of pressure on new, on business models for newspapers and for television channels. We have all these additional channels of information that didn't exist 10 years ago. We have an increasingly polarised public. We have a public that is increasingly used to hearing things that reinforce their own prejudices, not having an open mind. And so it is just too complicated to say, why don't you just all be nice to each other? Um, sorry, it's just too simplistic to say, why don't you just all be nice to each other? Uh, because, as I said, we've got to recognise that there are structures that have an impact on culture. Uh, and uh, those structures need to change. But can I fix the fact that social media has changed the way that people talk to each other? Can I fix the fact that there's new pressure on, um, on media business models that mean newspapers have become more and more shrill and tabloid? Can I fix those things uh, overnight? Absolutely not. Can I identify them as issues of concern and say that we need to be thinking about how, uh, what the interaction between our democracy, public sentiment, education, media and social media are? Absolutely. There's actually a really good couple of pieces in this week's Economist on this exact point. It's not just about whether or not social media are deliberately spreading things that are being planted by Russians in the US election. It's actually about the coarsening effect on our public discourse and what that means. So, look, I think if you were to look at a parliamentarian's speech, you would find... You know, you just, you, you look at the history where parliamentarians would maybe talk to a journalist once a day if they were the leader or the prime minister and would, would maybe put out a newsletter to their electorate once a quarter and now there is a constant barrage. I get hundreds of emails every day. I have five staff and a constituency of 110,000 people we have less time than we have ever had before. Discourse has become more coarse than it's ever been before. I'm frankly not shocked that the quality of speeches has decreased, but I also think that if you were to read and listen to the speeches that are made in the debate of bills that are serious bills, not just bills being brought on for a stunt or a political wedge, um, then you'll see they're actually quite thoughtful and sensible contributions being made. Musician, politician, and eternal optimist Terry Butler, thank you for being on the Good Life podcast today. Terry's book, Labour of Love, is available in bookstores and online.